19th of July 2012, the Moot community at the Guild Church of St Mary Aldermary in the City of London, Charles Eisenstein gave this lecture to a packed audience exploring the theme of the gift economy, drawing on his book The Sacred Economics. If it were aligned with the new story of the people and the new story of the self, and I know that it's going to have a lot to do with the gift because the gift, unlike money, expands the self to include all of our relationships. In a gift culture, as I pointed out, it's no longer true that more for you is less for me. It's no longer true that, that you are separate from me because now your good is also my good. So gift economics is aligned with the connected self, the new story of self. The connected self it's something that, even if our minds can't quite grasp it, uh, it's something that we can feel, you know? Why else would it hurt to read, to see those pictures of, you know, after the Gulf oil spill and there's those seabirds, you know, staggering on the shore, soaked in oil? Like, why should that hurt? You know, so what? You know? In England, I mean, we don't get shrimp in England from the Gulf of Mexico, we get it from somewhere else, who cares, you know? Fukushima? You know, that's just some people in Japan. That radiation isn't going to get over here. Who cares? But it hurts us because the fact is, the truth is that what happens to anybody and anything and, and to the planet is happening to us as well. And we can no longer escape that. We, in the, 50 or 100 years ago, it seemed as though we could escape the consequences of our actions. It seemed as though that we were exceptions to ecology where everything circles back, that we were separate from nature. But today, we can't escape it anymore. The, the circle of karma is getting tighter. So this is something that we can feel, something that we know, just like we know the truth of the gift, that, that we're here to do something, that, that serves something greater than ourselves. We're here to give of our gifts. We know that. And for a long time, and this knowledge resides in the heart, and for a long time, it was in conflict with our logic and our, and, uh, and our systems. And this conflict is beginning to resolve now. And we're entering into a new logic in which it makes total sense. What we feel makes total sense. Because the story of separation is becoming obsolete. In physics even, it's becoming obsolete. You know, it's no longer, no longer true that in physics that there's these discrete, separate entities in an objective universe. You know, the, the distinction between subject and object is becoming very questionable. In biology, it's changing too. It's not these discrete, selfish genes. We're learning that, that, uh, that genetic material is routinely exchanged between organisms, even across species, that were expressions of a genetic plenum. 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 I don't know how to say that word. Um, Anyway, that was supposed to make you think I was smart. <laughs> Got to throw a few big words in there um, to make up for my lack of credentials. I shouldn't have admitted that either. 
Okay, the new story of the people. What is the ascent over nature, the domination, the conquest of nature? What is, what's replacing that? What's replacing the growth paradigm? I kind of take a hint from biology. You know, some, some environmentalists in great despair, they say, well, humanity must be nature's great mistake, nature's big mistake, because look at us. All other creatures uh, are, come into equilibrium with their environment, but we're just growing, growing, and growing exponentially forever. But actually, in nature, there are periods of exponential growth and, and, and rapid growth, and they go for a while, and then they level off on, and, and into an equilibrium state. For example, a child grows very fast, has one final growth spurt in adolescence, and then he stops growing. It's only unnatural if you try to prolong growth past that point. Like, I have a 16-year-old son. He's about 190 centimeters. And you know what? Like, maybe I should be worried, actually. He, he grew 10 centimeters three years ago, eight centimeters two years ago, only four centimeters last year, and now he's not growing at all. How can I get growth? How can I reignite economic growth? I mean, how can I reignite his growth? That would be insane. I could, maybe if I fed him hormones or something like that. Just like we could get our economy to grow a little bit more. All we have to do is, is frack it and drill in the wildlife reserve and, and whatever capacity of the atmosphere remains to absorb our waste, let's use that up. Let's squeeze a few more drops of growth out of there to keep this system going a little longer because that's all we know how to do. Okay. But what we're facing is a transition into adulthood, into a post-growth economy, a steady-state economy. When growth ends and the transition to adulthood happens, there's two things that mark that transition, and I think we're seeing both of them in our civilization. The first thing is that you fall in love. The love relationship changes on entering adulthood. The child loves his mother, loves his father, and his main role, his main role in that relationship is to receive. But when you fall in love, you no longer just want to receive. You want to give also. It's an equal relationship, even a co-creative relationship. You want to create something together. You want to do something together. Maybe even create a family together. And I think that humanity, and I'm talking about the mass culture, civilization, not, I'm not talking about the indigenous, this is a different story, but the bulk of humanity now, industrial civilization, is falling in love with Earth. No longer wanting to be in that role of just taking, but wanting to give in turn as well. I think it started really as a mass movement in the 1960s when, when books like Silent Spring came onto the scene. I read that when I was a kid. It had a huge impact on me, huge impact. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for Rachel Carson. 
and, and people read these books and, and they saw what was happening and they no longer desired just to extract, to take from Earth, but they desired to protect the Earth and to give back to Earth. A key moment came when the first photographs of Earth were beamed down from the satellites and the astronauts came back with these pictures of, of the planet and it was so beautiful. I don't know if anyone here is old enough to remember the first time that you saw these and how powerful that was, right? Christmas Eve, 1966, yeah. Powerful. It was the first time many people saw the Earth without borders drawn on it. And it was so beautiful and people, something changed then. The astronauts, they had these, they all had these spiritual experiences when they went up there. They had these, these epiphanies. Um, I quote some of them in, in my books. Um, my favorite is, is, I think it's by Rusty Schweikart. And he said, when I was on the moon, when you're up on the moon looking down at Earth, Earth is this little dot that you can cover with your thumb. And I was up there and I realized, he said, I realized that everything precious to me was all on that little speck, all of music, all of art, all of history, love, death, birth, all of literature, all of culture. Everybody I've ever loved, all on this little blue dot that I could cover up with my thumb. And he said, I, I was never the same after that. The relationship is different now. The relationship is different now. The second thing that happens in the passage to adulthood is that you go through an ordeal. Primitive cultures understood the necessity of an ordeal and they would create them on purpose. So they would take you out into the bush and tie you to a tree without food or water for three days and you would have a vision. Or they would feed you large amounts of psychedelic plants or they would subject you to severe physical pain, scarification, or they would send you on a vision quest and you better not come back until you've had a vision and we'll know if you haven't. And some people don't come back. Um, whatever it was, these rituals were intense enough to cause your identity to fall apart. Everything that had seemed so real and reliable and permanent was blown away and you didn't know who you were anymore. And that opened you up to take on a larger identity and you would come back from the ordeal as a full member of the tribe. We don't have these ordeals really today, and that's one reason why you might find yourself in your 20s or even in your 30s feeling like you're a child playing grown-up somehow. Like, here I am, dressed like an adult, you know, and with a job and adult clothes and an adult body, but why do I feel like I'm pretending, like I'm playing make-believe here? Um, anyway, this ordeal would, 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 would make your world fall apart and allow you to take on a new identity, a larger identity that included the tribe. And I think humanity is going through that ordeal right now. That's what all of these crises are doing to us. The world is falling apart. All the things that had seemed so real, so secure, so permanent, are being revealed as, as, as illusion. It's especially obvious in the money system. 
A generation ago, there was nothing more practical, solid, and permanent than blue chip stocks and triple A bonds and your pension. Like that was the essence of practicality. And today, we no longer trust in the permanence of these things. And many people do have the sense that, that the world is falling apart. They almost get a sense of vertigo, like if you lose your job. Um, so what's happening then is that humanity collectively is also being propelled into our full membership in the tribe of all life on earth, in which we no longer just receive, but we give in turn. So translating that into economics. That means that our economy can no longer be an exception to ecology, but has to become part of ecology, and that's what we want it to do. Today, it isn't, partly because of the way the money system works. For example, costs to the ecosystem costs to future generations, costs to society, are external to the balance sheet. You can make lots of pollution, but your product will still be very cheap because it doesn't include the cost of that pollution. So one thing I talk about in the book, and this idea is not really that, that radical or that new. Um, Pigot was talking about that in the, in the 20s and 30s. Um, but it's to internalize these costs so that, that the profit motive is aligned with the good of society and the planet. And so that would align money with the new story of the people, which is co-creative partnership in love with Earth. And that's the only kind of money system, I think, that will make sense. Um, the only kind that will end this conflict between what makes my heart sing and uh, where the money is. Like, what if the big money were in ecosystem restoration? What if the big money were in permaculture? You know, what if the big money were in social work, healing the, 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 the damage that's been caused by thousands of years of separation? And that's where we want to go anyway. Which means that the division between work and play, between work and life, or work and leisure also begins to crumble. And we no longer have to make ourselves do things we don't want to do in order to make a living. Uh, work has gotten a bad reputation. Economics talks about the disutility of work, meaning that you really don't want to work, but you have to, to make a living, and so you do, or to get these things that you want. But if you had your druthers, if you, if you didn't have to work, then you would sit around in front of the TV eating chocolate bonbons all day because why, why would you want to work, you know? But, but one, of the, so one of the aspects of separation that's breaking down is this, is this dichotomy between work and, and joy, you know? And we're understanding that, yeah, we want to work. And it's not that money makes us do the work we don't want to do. It's that, it's that money stops us from doing the work that we want to do so today. All right, so that's one, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to talk too much longer, I'm going to have questions soon. Um, but I just wanted to give um, one example, like a, a lot of the book, Sacred Economics, is really about the nitty-gritty of how, in fact, do you align money with 
the new story of the self and the new story of the people. And how do you align it with the principle of the gift? Another principle of the gift, and I mentioned it before, is that the more you give, the richer you are. In the book, I, uh, I quote an um, anthropologist. I think it was Richard Lee, uh, who did his field work in the Kalahari Desert with the Kung, the, otherwise known as the Bushmen. And, and they had a word for wealth that he translated as wealth. That word was kai, kai, K-A-I. And a rich man was called a kaiha. So Richard Lee asked his informant, Zoma, he said, what is it that makes a man a kaiha? Is it because he has lots of kai in his hut, lots of, refers to beads and pretty things, valuables, that, you know. Is that, is that, you know, if he has a lot of kai in his hut, does that make him a kaiha? And Zoma laughed at him and said, no, you don't understand. We don't call a man a kaiha if he has lots of kai in his hut. We call a man a kaiha who makes lots of kai circulate, who gives a lot of his kai. Then we call him a kaiha. And Richard Lee said, it seemed as if you were saying that wealth is a matter of how many friends you have rather than how much stuff you have. So another question I play with in the book is, how do you make money like that? And by the way, I'm not, the book isn't only about money. I don't think economics should only be about money. But how do you make money take on this aspect of a gift culture, where if you have more than you need, then you give it to somebody who needs it. And that creates goodwill, that creates gratitude, that makes you secure because then if you need something, they will take care of you too. It was certainly the case in most hunter-gatherer societies when possessions were a, a literal burden because you had to, they were nomadic and you had to carry them around. Um, also, to a great extent, true in early agricultural societies, um, before money especially, you know, where if you had a really rich harvest that year and you have a granary full of grain, is it really going to do you much good to keep it yourself? No, because it's going to rot. It's going to go bad. Rats are going to eat it. You're better off giving it to everybody around you. And then they'll remember that. And when they have a good harvest, they'll give it to you, too. And it's, I don't mean to make it sound so calculating. Um, I mean, this dynamic was embedded into kinship systems and, and um, systems of reciprocity. But money's not like that. If I have more money than I need, I'm not going to say, well, I'm not using it now. I'll just let you guys use it. Because money doesn't go bad. It doesn't go bad because you can invest it in interest. The more you have, the more you can get. Now, we can talk about inflation and risk and things like that. Um, so I'm just going to generalize to say that, especially if you have a lot of money, you can beat inflation by investing it uh, free of risk. Free of risk used to mean things like treasury bonds. Um, can't remember what they call them in England, gilts or something. Um, but today, it means anything that you know the government will bail out. So the risk-free interest rate is actually much higher if you have enough money. So money is not like grain. Um, let me just give you an example here. Like, 
there's maybe 250, 300 people here. So say I have 500 loaves of bread right now in a pile, and I'm a selfish bastard. I want to maximize my self-interest. Is it in my self-interest to keep those all and not let anyone have any? No, because I can't eat that much. It'll go bad. It'll go stale. It's much, it would be better for me to, to give everybody two loaves and say, this is a loan at call. When I ask you for two loaves of fresh bread, just as good as this bread, you have to give me two loaves of fresh bread, okay? I don't have the leverage to say, I'm only going to give you these two loaves if you give me three loaves back. I don't have that leverage. Money's not like bread, but it could be like bread. If it decayed, like bread does, like grain does, like pretty much everything in the natural world does. Money doesn't decay. It's this unnatural thing. It's an exception to the ecological principle of return. And it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, money systems have been devised where the money does decay and were actually applied uh, during the Great Depression in Austria and in the United States and some other places. Um, and I'm not going to go too much into technical detail here um, because, well, it's hard to give a little piece of it without sounding really naive and, oh, Charles must not have thought of this, that, and the other thing. Um, but there's a really long chapter on it in the book and I, and, and I cite some pretty mainstream economists who have played with this idea. Um, William Buter, uh, uh, a few other ones, Federal Reserve Papers even. Um, and the idea basically is to impose a liquidity tax on reserves, on bank reserves in the central bank, which basically means that money, instead of growing at, say, whatever percent interest, it decays at, say, 5% interest. Cash would have to have some kind of built-in expiry or decay rate also. And so what that means is that if you have, say, if you're a bank, maybe, and you have 10 billion pounds of reserves, and you just hold on to those reserves, by the end of the year, they're only worth 9.5 billion. So it becomes in your interest to lend them, even at zero interest, rather than to hold on to it. To make a very long story short, it allows the money system to work in the absence of growth. It allows the money system to still work when the marginal efficiency of capital is less than zero, meaning that, that basically meaning that the economy isn't growing uh, and there aren't a lot of investment opportunities that will bring even more money back. It allows the system to work without growth. And it brings the economy in line with ecological principles. Now, some, some of you who kind of understand what I'm talking about might be, feel very curious and have a lot of questions, and I invite you to, to read more about it. My work is online as well as in print. Um, one of the aspects of gift economy that I, I practice is to offer my work as a gift. Um, for example, I don't charge for my events as best I can avoid it. Uh, and, but I allow opportunities for people to give in return if they want to. 
And that's how the gift works. You know, you, you give it and then you, the, the, the gratitude and sense of value of the recipient motivates the return gift. And you guys have been sitting here for a very long time. Um, so, I, mean, I can take this in a lot of directions, and I'm going to stop in a minute here um, and take questions. A lot of the book is also about the personal dimensions of internalizing this cosmology of the gift and aligning our lives with the felt understanding of inner beingness. Today, to do that, you have to fight not only, I don't want to say fight, but resist not only your own habits that are inherited from the past, habits of separation, habits of scarcity, but also you have to resist the structures that are around us. The people who say that's crazy to do something just because you love it and you don't know how the return gift is going to come, you put it out there and you don't know what's going to come back, to just trust like that, that's crazy. And there's a little voice inside of you that says that's crazy. And there's a whole money system that says that's crazy. One thing that's happening is that those little voices are getting less compelling. And the systems around us are getting less compelling because they're not working anymore. We're still in a transition stage. One reason that I'm here tonight is to kind of be on the side of that voice that says, it'll be all right. And it's time for me to live my life, not the life that I'm paid to live, not, not somebody else's life. And to say that that's not crazy. It's not crazy because from the perspective of this new story of the people, this new story of interconnectedness, what you do unto the other, you are, in fact, doing unto yourself. It will come back to you as surely as if you hurt your liver, you will be hurting yourself. Like, liver and self are not separate. Right? Our, our existing ideology understands that, but it doesn't understand that world and self are not separate. But now, we're coming into a new logic that affirms that. And so it no longer seems so crazy. And I guess that'll be my, my final message, is, is that this time of being very lonely in listening to that crazy voice is over. And more and more, we will all receive help from other people who are also living different, in different ways, living in the gift, living from the understanding of connectedness, from the understanding of inner beingness, all of us in a different way. It's not like this big heroic transformation. Every single person I meet, I don't care if they're an investment banker or, or a garbage collector or what, every single person that I meet has in some way begun to pioneer this new territory. This isn't a transition that we make 
by ourselves through our own efforts. And I've meditated a lot, so therefore I am more in inner beingness than somebody else. That perception comes from separation, doesn't it? That they're someone else, not me. So I've done it and they haven't. No, no. It recognizes that, that every person is a mirror of myself. And so this is a, a transition that we all have to make together, and that we are making together. Okay. So thank you for your attention. Thanks for listening to the Moot Community Podcast. If you'd like more information on who we are and what we do, please visit www.moot.uk.net.